If you're turning with me in your Bibles, we'll be starting with a familiar story, but I want to show you something. I want to show you something pretty cool. And we're going to talk about a couple things today and uh, save some of it for next week. So today I want to talk to you about getting ahead of yourself. Getting ahead of yourself. Start thinking about that. We're going to talk about it more in a minute. But you heard people say, don't get ahead of yourself. Right? Now, don't you get ahead of yourself. I'm going to talk to you about getting ahead of yourself. Reaping and sowing. Swords and football. Somebody killing that child? <laughs> we don't believe in that. And we need more nursery workers that are called to be in there, if any of you feeling... <laughs> no, just kidding. I forgot what we're talking about. Reaping and sowing, swords, football, getting ahead of yourself. So I'm going to start out by talking to you about David. And, and we're going to talk about a familiar story, like I said, in 1 Samuel 17. But, you know, we have more written down more in scripture like we know more about David than any other person we know more about David than we do about Jesus or Paul or or anyone we've got glimpses into like David's whole life there's more written about him than anyone else we know that David was a man after God's own heart we know that David was the greatest king that Israel has ever known so today we're going to Look at part of the story of David. And I believe God's going to speak to our hearts. He went from shepherd to king. He was a hero, a warrior, a world changer. And I think we probably all know the story of David and Goliath. Like when David got famous, when Saul found out who David was, when he, of, of David and Goliath, the story of this teenage boy that shows up and, and kills a giant and brought victory to all of his people. If you don't know the story, David was anointed to be king. And he was just a boy. And then he went back to obeying the father. He went back to watching the sheep. His brothers were warriors. His brothers went to war and fought for Saul. And David went back to work. A lot of times when we get the call from God, then all of a sudden we, oh no, I'm the king. I don't want sheep anymore. Not David. He kept walking in obedience, waiting on his time, his moment. So his brothers were off at war, and his dad calls him in. His dad's name's Jesse. He calls him in and said, hey, I need you to take some cheese pizzas to your brothers. They're hungry. It says bread and cheese, but we'll say cheese pizzas. So David was pretty much just a pizza delivery boy at this point. He watched sheep, which was a pretty low job. David shows up to give his brothers this, these cheese pizzas, and there's this giant screaming and hollering and defying the God of Israel. 
You see, back in their day, it was common that when you were at a standoff and your army was on one hill and their army was on the other hill and you'd scream back and forth. But so to settle it, you'd pick a champion to send down the hill. They'd pick a champion to send down the hill and you'd fight it out. It's like a deadly version of rock, paper, scissors. So they sent their biggest, baddest, greatest warrior. And the Israelites were scared. They had nobody to match him. And like if we were at war and, and we were going to send out one person to play one-on-one basketball, and they had LeBron out there. Who do we send? They knew they couldn't beat him. David shows up. He's just a kid. David said, I'll get him. I'll beat him. Send me out there. And y'all know the story. Saul tried to put on armor. I need to not take too long. David is going to go out and fight him. But look what David does. I'm going to start reading 1 Samuel 17, verse 40. And he took his staff in his hand. He was a shepherd. He had a staff. And he chose him five smooth stones out of the brook. To pick up a stone in the brook, you have to kneel down. A posture of worship. posture of, of prayer. He knelt down to pick up what he needed for the battle that was coming. He didn't wait till he got in the battle down there fighting Goliath. And then start looking around on the ground for something to use. Start looking for some ammo when he was in the heat of the battle. He probably would have died. He bowed himself down and picked up what he needed for the fight that was to come. You got to pick up the stones before you get in the fight. You wait till you're in the fight. It's too late. You lose the battle. So he bowed down in worship and prayer how we're supposed to come into church and bow down and prepare ourselves and pick up the things that we need for the battles that are to come. So David bent down. He bowed himself down. He picked up five smooth stones And he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David. And the man that bare his shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and he saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy. This is the second time in scripture we have David's called ruddy. First one was when Samuel anointed him, they said, he's, he's ruddy. Said that, and ruddy and of a fair countenance. David is called ruddy in 1 Samuel 16, 12, when Samuel anointed him. And here in 1 Samuel 17, 42, when Goliath was making fun of David. Why? The scholars will tell us that It was because he was youthful and handsome. And he didn't have that hard, weary, blemished look that men of war would have. He was a boy. He was handsome. He didn't have any scars on him or anything. He was not a warrior. Didn't look like a warrior. And so Goliath was making fun of him. Ruddy and of a fair countenance. He's saying, hey, pretty boy. It is to say you don't have a beard. Hey, pretty boy. You don't even have a beard. Oh, red face. That's one of the meanings of ruddy is red faced. 
little boy. Ruddy, the modern definition is of a, per, of a person's face having healthy red color to blush. His face probably was red. His adrenaline was probably pumping. He was probably a little scared to death. He's a kid. And he's running up to this big warrior. He had a red face. In the Old English Dictionary, which is when, when the Bible got translated into English, it was Old English. And so in the Old English Dictionary, this word meant reddish, suntan, healthily, and glowing appearance. A tanned and brilliant glow, demonstrating vibrance in the skin. He had a great suntan. Rosy red cheeks. He's been out watching the sheep. I bet he did have a good suntan. And Goliath was making fun of him. You're a little boy. You're coming at me. You don't even have a beard, you little red-faced boy. You better get back up the hill. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest at me with staves? You're coming at me with a stick? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword. David didn't have a sword. Keep that in mind. Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. David's got confidence. David was bold. This day will the Lord deliver thee unto mine hand. And I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. He's beginning to speak. The vision that he has. I'm going to take your head. And I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you un into our hands. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose, and he came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. David takes off running at him. All right, you're brave enough to go down the hill. You're brave enough to trash talk and scream back and forth across this little valley. But then when it came time to fight, David takes off running at the dude, sprinting. You're very bold or crazy. One of the two. David ran at him and put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone. Remember that he had picked up before. And he slang it. And he smoked. Sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> and he smote the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sunk into his forehead. 
and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. And he smote the Philistine and he slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. He didn't have all that he needed. Right? He had a sling. It said the sling and the stone were in his hand. But remember his vision and his promise. What he said was, I'm going to cut your head off. It's going to be kind of hard with his staff. It's going to take a minute. Goliath probably wasn't even dead. You probably knocked him out with that stone. So you need to be pretty quick with this old head chopping off thing. When he gets up, he's going to be mad. So it seemed like David didn't even have what he needed to walk out the call. The vision. Although he picked up the stones and he had his sling and stuff, but it wasn't enough to do all that he needed to do. It wasn't enough to do what he had declared that he was going to do. He still needed something else. There was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and he stood upon the Philistine. He running. He ran and stood on him. David, this little red-faced, beardless dude running all over the place, a little spaz, hit him in the head with a rock, and then it said he ran and sprinted over there and jumped up on top of him. And he drew it out of the sheet. Thereof, he took Goliath's own sword, and he slew him. He cut off his head. Therewith, and when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and of Judah arose, and they shouted, and they pursued the Philistines. Until thou come to the valley, and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way, by Villarica, and all the way to Douglasville, and unto Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines, and they spoiled their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine, and he brought it to Jerusalem. And that's kind of weird. David took the head of the Philistine, but he put his armor. In his tent. Spoils of war. So David takes all this armor. And he takes it and puts it in his tent. That means he kept it. And he took the head of the Philistine. And there's a lot of. If you go study this. And look at history books. And read from the scholars. And Jewish history and stuff. Most will agree and believe. That David took Goliath's head back. First of all, to prove because, you know, Saul had said, whoever kills this giant, he'll get to, like, marry my daughter. He'll never have to pay taxes again. That'd be nice. All these, like, perks. So what's your proof that you actually killed him? Like, what if somebody says, nah, he ain't do that. And somebody threw that rock from the side, but he's got the head with him as his proof. But, but what most scholars believe, and when you study back through history, trust me, I looked a lot this week trying to figure this out for sure. They can mostly agree that David took the head of Goliath and he buried it on a hill just outside of Jerusalem that would be called Golgotha. And the name Golgotha, place of the skull, the place where Jesus was crucified, where the name they came up with was Goliath of Gath, Golgotha. Golgotha, Goliath of Gath, they put it together. And it's the place of the skull, it's the hill where Jesus was killed. 
is where David buried the head of Goliath, the Philistine giant. It was a great victory. Now, I want to fast forward. It's only going to be a couple pages in the Bible. We're going to flip forward and read another part of the story. But it's only a few pages in your Bible. But this was years had passed in the life of David. All right, so David becomes a general in Saul's army. David becomes this mighty warrior. David's leading troops. David's doing all these great things. He's married to Saul's daughter. And people start writing songs about him. And they come back into town from this big war. And Saul hears all the women singing the new number one hit. It's been playing on the radio. And the song goes like, Saul has killed his thousands and David tens of thousands. It made Saul mad. It made Saul jealous and start to hate David. David didn't even write the song. He was fighting for you. You put him on the front lines and he just did a good job. He, he can't help it. They wrote the song about him. But Saul got jealous. Saul got mad. And he starts trying to kill David. Some of them are pretty serious attempts and some of them just casual. Like David will be sitting there playing a song for him to calm him down and soothe him, playing a good worship song, and Saul will pick up a spear and chunk it at him. David dodges it and keeps on playing. Look, if I, I mean, if I were to pull out my sword, oh, and people have asked me what happens if a gunman comes in here. That's why when he comes in that tunnel, all y'all are safe. Y'all duck. I got my sword right here, so I'll stay behind my pulpit. Okay, so what if I pulled this out and I chunk it at Dylan while he's playing music for me back there? I mean, that's probably not good. That's bad. I probably won't miss like Saul did, but what if I miss? Just say, it's imaginary, right? What if Dylan's elusive and he dodges it? Because he used to be good at dodgeball in children's church. I remember that. Then he just dodges this thing. It stabs in the wall. Dylan, what would you think? I think he should drop the guitar, grab the sword out, and say, Bye. Come at me. It was to the point where Saul kept trying to kill him, and David was a bad boy. David could have killed Saul, but he respected him. He said he wouldn't touch God's anointed. And with wise counsel of a friend, Jonathan, David takes off because he knows he's going to get killed. He's got to get away. But there's a battle coming. So we're going to turn two pages to, well, it's two pages in my Bible. 1 Samuel 21, verse 8. Things get really bad with Saul and He's going to kill David, and David takes off. He has to leave in the middle of the night. You know where he goes? 
First place, he takes off. He goes to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. He pretty much went to church. For them, that's where the presence of God was. That's where the priests were. That's, David took off and he, he went to church. He went to the brook. He knew there was a battle coming. He went again to pick up some stones to worship. And he shows up there, shows up at Nob. And he got down on his knees to pick up stones. I also noticed, we're going to read in a minute, but he didn't have time to even pack a bag. Like he's telling the priest, I don't have anything with me for my journey. Like I didn't have time to grab a weapon or anything. But yet, he had some boys with him. He had some relationships that were with him. Dude, if I'm running away from my house in the middle of the night because somebody's trying to kill me, like so much so that I don't even have time to grab a weapon. But I got some relationships that are so close and that trust me so much. They're with me running in the night. Do you have any relationships that close? When you're running for your life or when you're afraid or when you're scared or when, when you don't even have time to grab weapons, to grab what you need for the fight that you got people with you. We'll talk more about the relationship part next week. So skip on down. David's saying to Ahimelech, hey, look, me and my guys, we're starving. We got no food. Please feed us. Feed me and the boys. And Ahimelech's like, all I got is communion. All I got is communion bread in here. You know only the priests are supposed to eat that and only the priests can eat it after they've gone through the steps and it's ceremonially clean and all this. You can't just eat it. And David's like, we're hungry. So he said, okay. And he gives them the communion bread and so they all eat the communion bread and they get full and they get bread for the journey. They get what they need. And then look at verse 8. And David said unto Ahimelech, and is there not under thine hand a spear or a sword? Hey, thanks for the bread. Uh, you would happen to have a spear or a sword here, would you? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. It's a very creative telling of the truth there, David. <laughs> the king's business required haste. I had to leave real fast and didn't have time to grab my sword. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah. Behold, it was here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is none other. Save that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it me. Yes. There's no sword as good as the one I took from Goliath. Perfect. I'll take it. 
He took the sword that came from a Goliath. Can I tell you today that what you fight through will eventually fight for you? He needed a sword for the journey. He needed a sword for the battle that he was about to face. And had he not killed Goliath and taken that sword years earlier, you see, when David took the sword from Goliath, David was a red-faced, beardless boy who couldn't handle the sword. It was more than he could handle. Now he is a seasoned warrior, an adult man that could handle the sword. But think about this. He kept the head. He kept the armor. But he gave the sword. He gave up the sword. He gave it to the church. That's where it was. He was generous. He let it go. He sowed a seed, if you will. And years later, it came back when he could handle it. When he was ready for it. God gave it back to him. Two things. I want to pull out of this story and we're going to talk about those two things for a few minutes and we're going to be done. The first one, be courageous. David ran towards Goliath. He sprinted at him. He didn't timidly walk. He wasn't moving slow. He didn't give himself time to, to run. Fight now. Don't put it off. Don't let that giant keep roaring. Don't keep talking trash. Don't, don't just be all talk. Do it. End it. Attack. Don't be afraid. Don't convince yourself why it's not time. Be courageous. Be bold. Go for it. Run toward the roar. Remember we talked, I don't, I don't know when it was, several weeks ago about how lions will set up a trap and all the lionesses will hide around the watering hole and bushes and all around and then they'll wait on some animal to come up, a big animal, a big water buffalo or something, and then the male lion will come out and start to roar. To roar. And, and on the, the show I watched about it, it said if the buffalo would run at the roar, there's no way that that one male lion could take down the water buffalo. But what happens every single time is water buffalo hears the roar, gets scared, is led by his fear, and runs away from the roar straight into the trap. And all the lionesses jump on him and kill him. And then the big male lion just walks over there and eats. That's his job. He roars, he eats. But if he'd run at the roar, he would have life. If you are led and motivated by your fear, you run into death every time. 
You're running to death every time. Don't be scared. Run at the roar. Face that thing. If you got a problem, work it out. Like Jesus said, when we have a problem, if I have a problem with my brother, go to him. Work it out. If you can't work it out, then go above your head. But work it out. Go to it. Be courageous. The second one, and here's the big one that I saw in this, these two things of this story. I haven't really thought about that. That he took the sword and then he got the sword back because he gave it. It's be generous. See, he went to God's house and he got bread and he got a sword. That's what we get when we come to church. Provision and protection. That's what he got. Now he's big enough to actually use the sword. So I told you we were going to talk about getting ahead of yourself. Now I think you can kind of see where I'm going with that. David got ahead of himself by giving the sword. He could have kept the sword. He killed Goliath. He was probably advised to keep the sword. That's yours, man. You were bold and courageous. You killed him. You keep the armor, the sword. That's all yours. That's how we do it. That's how it's done in war. And David, even as a boy, said, Nah, this sword's awesome, but I'm going to give this to the priest. I'll give this to the house. I'll give this to God, and I'll keep the armor and the head. Weird. <laughs> but he gave it. He got ahead of himself. Well, I guess he got ahead of Goliath as well. <laughs> now that I think about it, but he got ahead of himself. Now, you've probably heard people say, don't get ahead of yourself. Like when a kid's learning piano and they got their first recital coming up and you say, what, what song are you going to play? Uh, I've selected this uh, song by, written by Beethoven. Now, don't get ahead of yourself. Maybe Mary Had a Little Lamb would be good for your first recital. Right? We've heard things like maybe you went out and bought the new car thinking you were going to get the bonus and then didn't. Or you don't put the cart before the horse kind of thing. That can all be good advice. Or maybe you like start pinning wedding dresses on Pinterest after the first date. Don't get ahead of yourself. Especially if your Pinterest is hooked to Facebook and it automatically posts the things you pin. He gone. <laughs> Don't get ahead of yourself, right? It can be good advice. But I'm talking about getting ahead of yourself like a farmer planting seed. He wants to see a crop, so he plants seed today for what he wants to receive tomorrow. He makes good decisions now so that in the future, he can reap a good harvest. Um, I heard Andy Stanley say a long time ago, and I've just remembered it. You reap what you sow later than you sow, 
and more than you sow. The Bible teaches us about reaping and sowing. 2 Corinthians 9 tells us that God gives seed to the sower. God gives seed to the sower. And if you think about that, I, I was thinking about that this week. You know, because I see people say, well, I don't have anything to give. Will God give seed to the sower? So if you're not giving anything, then you probably won't ever have anything to give. Because you'll always, you'll never have enough. Well, I don't have time to help out with the church or go feed the homeless or to give to anyone other than myself. I don't, I don't have time to volunteer and, and go to House of Cherith with the ladies. I'm, I'm just so busy, I don't have time. But God gives seed to the sower. So if you were to sow some of your time, maybe God would multiply your time back to you. Maybe you would be per, more productive in the time that you have so then you would have more time. That's what that means. God gives seed to the sower. Time, talent, treasures. And we're not just talking about money. Being generous with your life. The first response to love is to give. For God so loved the world that he gave. So if you're not a generous person, you don't look like Jesus. You look most like God when you give. Just sowing seed. We're having a, uh, we're doing something that we've never done as a church tonight. And I know a couple people have asked and stuff. And it was just something that, that God laid on my heart. And so tonight, me and Jesse are putting on a top 10 dinner. Um, and it is simply to honor the top 10 financial supporters of this house and this church for 2019. Top 10, and we're going to have some competitions, or not competitions, but some just awards that we're giving out. And just, it's fun just to honor them because that doesn't happen. And... We get scared. We don't want to talk about money because so many people have been hurt or offended or, you know. So I hardly ever preach about money. I hardly ever preach about giving and stuff. But tonight we're, we're having this dinner and it's just to honor people that financially supported the ministry last year and all the awesome things that we were able to do and keeping the lights on and paying me a salary and like all the things that we do buying toilet paper to put in the bathrooms in there it's needed and we've got pictures of those top 10 well, those of you that are the top 10 that were invited tonight you're thinking how they get pictures of me <laughs> we're going to be doing something fun with those pictures tonight but Jesse was preparing stuff for it and had them all laid out on the table. So at 5 o'clock this morning when I was up to get prepared for church, I had in some headphones and some worship music, and I was just looking over those pictures and, and praying over those people. And, and as I looked down through those pictures, I realized that the top 10 are not the richest among us. 
not even close. Right? There, there are two single women on that list. There's a man in his 20s. There are people that, as their pastor, I know that they really struggled financially last year. And they're in the top 10. And the older crowd is represented in a strong way. (laughs) They may not be the richest, but they're faithful. And they prove the position of their heart with an act that destroys selfishness. The way that Jesus said it in Matthew 6, 19. I'm read it to you in the Message Bible. Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place you will most want to be and end up being. God's not after your money. He's after your heart. They happen to be in the same place most of the time. Giving money is just a representation of giving of your life. It's giving a portion of you and what you worked for and what you have. And and it's this giving of your time and the things that God's gifted you with and giving of your money. And it's all a representation of laying your life down for something other than yourself, for something bigger than you. What does Jesus do when you give your life? When you're willing to give it all for purpose. To lay down what you want for something bigger. I'll show you what Jesus does. And we're done. In Acts 7, we read the story of a guy named Stephen. And it tells us that he was full of the Holy Spirit and he was doing these great things for God. He was a servant. We know that from reading his story. He waited tables. He served well. He gave of himself. And he got to preach one message that we know of. And he preached a powerful message. Man, I'm glad that's not me. What if I only got one shot? I try to hit home runs every week, but I know sometimes I just come in here and bunt, so I apologize. (laughs) This dude got one shot that we know of. He got to preach one message and go read the whole story. But in his message, towards the end of his message, he starts calling people out, and they don't like it. He starts calling out the religious people, and he calls them stiff-necked, uncircumcised, like these were cuss words to them. But what he was getting at is they're unwilling to change. They're unwilling to see what Jesus has done. 
And so he gets done. And verse 54, Acts 7, 54 says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. Huh? But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven. And he saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear it. And they ran upon him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witness laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Later we would know him as Paul. And he would write a lot of our New Testament. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, that sounds like something I've heard before. Sounds about like what Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They were chunking rocks at him until he died. And in the middle of that, he was forgiven them. Uh, God, forgive them. But notice... Jesus was standing. So after the cross, Scripture tells us that Jesus was seated at the right hand of God as a sign that it is finished, as a sign of rest. Wherever else we see, it's Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is seated. It is finished, a sign of rest. So here, Jesus was standing. Jesus was standing up looking and, and when Stephen got to see into heaven, he saw Jesus standing there looking down at him. Stephen was the first martyr, the first one to die for his faith, to do what he was purposed to do, to do what he was called to do. And he ended up dying for it and up to the very end he was forgiving people and looking like Jesus. That's not what he felt like doing. That's not what his flesh told him to do. That wasn't Sin didn't put him in that position. No. He was walking in obedience and up to the very end, he gave the clearest picture of Jesus. And Jesus was standing. About, let's see, two years ago, or three years ago, Sky, Sky was playing football two years ago. Um, and it was rec ball. And he was playing for Tallapoosa. And we went. They weren't that great that year. Sky was pretty good, but his team wasn't, just didn't have a line. Right, so we went to Carrollton. 
to play Carrollton Gold. And they were good. Really good. And so we game planned for them before. And our coach says that the only shot we have is they have a really good quarterback and they have a lot of speed. So the only shot we have is is Sky's the fastest kid on the team, so he's going to have to get get in the backfield and disrupt the plays or we're going to lose 100 to nothing. That's our only shot. And so they start lining Sky up and and I know that from the week from hearing him practice and hearing Sky talking about what his job was and they moved him out on the he was pretty much like on the line, like a linebacker that has moved up on the line to shoot in the backfield and mess up plays, right? And he's number 10. And uh, he said that on this play, his job was just to shoot straight at the quarterback and we're all in the stands watching and we're starting to get beat. And there's a blocker and Sky gets past him a couple times and messes up the plays, like it's working gets back there and gets the running back and he's messing up their plays. And then their coach is yelling from the sidelines about number 10. Forget about the other guy. They send another guy out there to help block Sky. So he's going to have two blockers on him. And they're shifting him out there. And then the dude's saying, you, you're supposed to get number 10. And he's the other kid saying, no, you're supposed to get number 10. And while these two jokers are arguing back and forth on who's supposed to block Sky, both standing right in front of him, the ball snapped, and Sky ran right in between them, untouched, sprinting. Both of them two jokers are standing there on the line like, uh-oh. There he goes. They can't run him down. He was too fast. The quarterback had rolled the opposite way, so the quarterback never even saw him coming. I knew what was going on. And as his father, I stood up in the stands. I stood. And I started telling everybody else around, watch this, here he comes, get him, Sky, go. Like before he had even gotten to him. Because he was doing what he was called to do in that moment. He made it through the blockers. He got past the giants which they were, and I knew he was about to do what he was purposed to do in that play in that moment. Now, he got about 10 yards from him, and I guess for show, he did a little Superman dive, and I guess he figured this might be my only shot. So he puts him in a headlock in the air and flips him and did like an alligator roll, and they flipped a couple times and slid out towards the, the sideline. I don't know if he's trying to put him out of the game or what. But I stood on my feet because I was proud of my boy doing what he was called to do. That's why Jesus was standing. He said, look, Dad, it worked. Look, I had to go through all that pain and die on the cross so that they could look like you and, and that they could walk in purpose and that they could receive a call on their life. And look, it's working. Relationships there. He just saw us in heaven. The Holy Spirit's in him. He's done what he was called to do. Jesus stood. That's why he stood. Because Stephen gave his life for the call. 
when we give our time, when we give our talents, when, when we walk up here and we've made $200 this week and we walk up here and put 20 or 30 of it in the offering or something like, it's giving a piece of our life. It's giving a piece of us. God sees that. And it's a seed. And it may be a sword that you're going to need to pick up in the future. Let's pray. God, thank you. God, thank you for Scripture and for examples. And that we get to see lives of ordinary people, people that messed up big. And we get to see their examples. God, thank you for grace and mercy. Thank you that you died for us. And that you paid for every mistake we would ever make. And that we can be in relationship with you. God, we want to live life with an open hand. Like you've called us to. God, we don't want to be the person that blessings just come to. We want to be the kind of people that blessings flow through. So when we get blessed, we bless other people. God, we want to fight great battles. God, we love you. Make us bold. Make us look more like you. Help us to walk in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.